following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. Does anybody remember my advertisement for Les Miserables? Can you paraphrase it for me? What's it about? It's about a guy so obsessed with justice that he becomes unjust. And another guy, though unjust, finds mercy and becomes just. It's greatest trailer advertisement tagline ever. My dad gave that to me uh, when he was living in England and was talking about theater. And I expected this long, rambling explanation, but because it was short and to the point and it captured my imagination... So just, you actually become unjust, unjust, but find mercy and become just. Man, that, I'm intrigued. I want to see the story. All right, I'm about to sell you guys an iPhone 4. You ready? No? <laughs> All right, we'll see. I'm ready. Let me see you. <laughs> see you. Boom. This was a commercial that um, Apple came out with to compete with Samsung. If you watch a Samsung commercial from the same time, they packed their commercial with um, technical stats and uh, functionality and um, all the capacity of their phone. And they totally lost the market. Why? It's not about a phone. It's about what the phone does. And once you care about what the phone does, then you can go to someone who's selling and say, tell me the specs. The problem with us sharing the gospel is we try to talk about the specs instead of telling what's the point. And what I want us to have today is one thing and one thing only. You have been given authority to keep the gospel simple when you proclaim it. And the conviction is that if you keep it simple, you'll be faithful. And when people come to faith, you go from simple to deep. Turns out that the phone that Samsung had at the time had better specs. And you can play FaceTime. You can, function, you can have FaceTime on Samsung. So there was nothing unique about this. But what they did is they captured of saying, we have a story that what we provide is good news to what you need. And the market went overwhelmingly saying, we trust you guys because you know what it is that we need. So what I want us to realize is what people need is less email. Sorry about that. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. And the reason we need 
and I'll just make it up now. The reason we need less email pinging us all the time is because we can never do enough. And as men, one of the struggles you have is there's always this pressure. If we can't explain everything enough. We can't do everything enough, provide everything enough. There's always more, and there's always this pressure. And part of the gospel is realizing that there is a place where you can come and find rest. How does Jesus say that? Come unto me. All y'all that are totally burned out and just want to quit, and instead of quitting, I'll do what? I'll give you rest. I'll, I'll take off these heavy burdens in the sense that you're the one trying to hold it all together, and instead, you will have your heart turned upside right. You're no longer panicking and grasping and in this control issue. And instead, there's this sense of stability that you have that allows you to be productive in due season. And the gospel that we're presenting to people includes some very deep and profound stuff, but the point of connection is life right now should make sense enough to be calmed, enough to have this abiding sense of it's all right. And secondly... We need to face mortality. We can't control life even if we uh, always go to our doctors, which we don't go as often as we should, and if we actually take their advice, which we don't always do. One of these days, we're still facing mortality. And the interesting thing you'll find in the book of Acts where Jesus has formed disciples and he has redeemed them through his shed blood, his resurrection, and then he has ascended and sent his spirit to empower them. And so he's trained them, he's empowered them. When they preach the gospel, they never frame the gospel in reference of heaven and hell. They teach about heaven and hell. They teach about eternal bliss and eternal judgment, but they do that for people that believe. They make warnings of judgment, but it's very vague. They make promises of bliss, but it's very vague. The focal point every time the gospel is preached in Acts is death. And that the good news is that Jesus explains life and he overcomes death. And that's it. Let's go to Acts 17 uh, to skim through the story there real quick uh, to test what I'm saying. It's just one example among many. And you can take your time to work through each of the sermons uh, or the gospel proclamations in um, the book of Acts, and you'll find that that's the consistent way that they do it. Acts 17 is um, Paul had just gotten run out of another place. Do what? Happened to him a lot, exactly. And so as he gets run out, he's, he's glad that the Bereans are really good. They're searching uh, the scriptures, and that's great. But he goes to Thessalonica, um, and there's problems, and he has to flee. So he goes ahead, and he goes to Athens. And while he's there, what was he freaked out about? Athens is sort of like San Francisco at the time. All the idolatry and stuff. And the idolatry is all these different ways to make sense out of life. When you talk about God's religion, philosophy, 
It's everybody's struggle to say, how do I make sense out of why is there something instead of nothing? Why am I alive and have these urges and desires? And how do I sort through? Do I just give in to all of my urges and desires and become a violent, indulgent person? Or do I restrain myself? And you'll see here even when you see that he begins to talk with people, and he talks with the Epicureans and the Stoics, and those are basically two directions. One which is, hey, just go for the good life. We live here and now. Let's enjoy it, the Epicurean way of thinking, which is more pleasure, more better. Just go with it. And then the Stoic way, which is saying that always leads us to frustration. Maybe if I'll have discipline and refrain from indulgence, then I'll have the good life. And these two major schools of thought compete. And actually, if you'll go through Western history, you'll find that basically those are the two dominant thoughts that just take different shapes over different times. Discipline and restraint, a form of conservatism, and engagement in the world that leads to its indulgence. And these major philosophies compete with each other and here comes Paul, and he wants to come and tell them about Jesus and what? His resurrection. And their response is, you're a babbler. What's this babbler trying to say, these strange ideas he's picked up? He seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. So here's Paul, the missionary, struggling with trying to connect with people. Tell me real quickly, and I need help with you guys because I'm excited this morning to just talk the whole time and then give five minutes to the end. I don't want to do it. Where do you have challenges of sharing the gospel with people who aren't raised in a Christian background? I need several examples. People you work with, tell me a couple examples of somebody. You like them, they like you, but they're not a Christian and they don't understand a Christian background. You want to connect to them, but it's hard. Yeah. Huh? A gay coworker, And do you all really have mutual respect and like each other, even though you obviously differ in regard to understanding sexuality in that way? Somebody else? Yeah, Jewish boss, do you respect him? Do you like him? Well, it depends. <laughs> we'll see if he's okay with you showing up late this morning saying, I was getting some religion, boss. Your daughter. That's an excellent one. And are, are you proud that she's strong-willed and has decisions and makes her own opinions? And then are you frustrated that she makes them in ways different than what you wish? This is the tension that we're talking about, is people that we do care about, but there is no simple solution. And we're trying to figure out how can I present things in a way that makes it clear. And that's what we really want as our goal, and I'm going to use this as a model, uh, but I'm going to put some qualifiers after a while about um, how to use it. So Paul's talking with people, and they're not able to understand the frame of what he's talking about. Um, it says that this is kind of what people did, is they just always talked ideas anyway, so they just kind of enjoyed getting into debates, partly because it never ends. Uh, once you get into a question of logical certitude, when's the last time you've had a debate that was resolved by logical certitude? Someone did a proper syllogism. Proposition one, two, three, applied the laws of logic and came to a conclusion and said, you know, I, I'm afraid I'm going to have to agree with you. Your logic is irrefutable. 
had a friend who posted something on Facebook about the Ten Commandments of um, discourse or debate, and as he was trying to explain about you know not making straw men arguments and all this other stuff, and then I said, actually, there's one other commandment: don't forget that you're on a platform that was created by a drunk young man who had his heart rejected, and he created a format where people could judge women on their attractiveness to get back at women in general. And so keep that in mind when you're wondering why isn't this working towards enlightenment and clarity as we debate on Facebook is be faithful to its original design, which is, yeah, just to be passionately opinionated without being obligated to logical necessity. And that's what these guys are doing is I don't, I want to talk concept because there is no way for anyone to finally corner me. There's always a way out as long as I keep it in conceptual debates. And so Paul gets up and he says, I've got to connect with these people. And in connecting with them, with this wide range of different views from far right to far left, and in one short message, get my message across. What does he do? Does he proclaim Trinitarianism? He doesn't. Does he proclaim substitutionary atonement? He doesn't. Does he explain the difference of grace and works? He doesn't. He finds a commonality, and then he says, I know what my point is, and if I get my simple point across, those who take my simple point, I will then take my simple point and take the deep implications of it. That the iPhone can do more than just FaceTime a grandfather seeing his granddaughter for the first time. So here's what Paul does. He says, men of Athens, I notice. And this is the first thing that I'd like you guys to think about with your friend that you had in mind is notice them. That instead of saying, how do I get everything in me forced into someone else, how do I listen to someone else and realize what their starting point is? In the Apple versus Samsung story, they're saying, who are my customers? People who aren't necessarily obsessed with tech specs. They're trying to live their lives, and we're going to connect where they are. And here, he connects where they're at because he notices. <laughs> Let me just turn that down in case I get more email. I'm trying to get you all to feel sorry for me. Talk to my boss about getting fewer emails for me, if y'all could do that. All right. Uh, men of Athens, I noticed that you're very religious in every way. So he notices and he shows them as much legitimate respect as he can. For I was walking along and I saw many shrines, and one of your altars had the inscription to it, to an unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. So he says, I've paid attention to you. I respect the fact that you've got some coherent efforts at trying to make sense out of life. And everyone that you had in your mind as we're thinking through these examples, there are true things about them you respect. But in your way of trying to make sense out of life, there's a gap that I would like to fill. That's how he approaches it. Noticing, respect, finds a point where there's room to speak. He then goes on and he tells a story. And this is part of what I've been going back to. What did Jesus say to his disciples on the road to Emmaus? Post-resurrection, his disciples are depressed. What was their problem? 
They didn't know the story from the law and the prophets. In other words, the whole Old Testament was telling a story. And he told them, if you know God's story that he's revealed in Scripture, you can use God's story to interpret your own experiences. And when you see Crown Heart World, the number one thing I want you to think about is this is a way to connect experiences and biblical truth. And we walk from experiences to revealed truth, which interpret those experiences so we know how to respond wisely to those experiences. So as you're going to be witnessing, sharing your faith, we want to start like engineers talking about the text specs, and we need to stop that, and we need to start on the user end and connect with their experiences and not feel that that's compromising the gospel because you don't stay with the experiences. You start with the experiences and you walk them from the experiences into the deep technical beauty of the gospel. And so he connects with them. Story. And he basically says, I'm going to take your story and I'm going to show you where your story needs a new story. And in that, he says... I'm going to tell you about this God. Verse 24, Acts 17. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples, and human hands can't serve his need, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man he created all the nations throughout the whole earth, He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations uh, to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he's not very far from us. This is very important, verse 28. What does it say? Yeah, which means when you go to a ball game, you're in the midst of God. In him you live and move and have your being at the ball game. When you go to eat dinner, you're still immersed in the reality of God. Not just when you're in a worship service that's been designed and calculated to give you a sense of environment and feeling, but when you're in traffic, in him you live and move and have your being. That you're immersed in this awareness, there's no place I can go that he's not there. I can't ascend to the mountains or the depths of the ocean and avoid him Everywhere he's there. So we want to connect with him, but we don't know how, even though in him we live and move and have our being. And what does he do then next? He quotes lyrics from the cool radio station. Right? In other words, he's, he's not guilty about the fact that he knows um, secular music, art, and other stuff like that. He finds it actually is a really good bridge to connect. And so he quotes and he says, some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is actually true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. So what do you think about that? Him quoting a pagan poet, Epimenides, I believe it was. Um, There's another attribution to somebody else. And saying that it's actually true. Is that all right? Yeah. Yeah. There you go. God can strike straight lick with crooked stick. Blind squirrel 
finds an acorn every once in a while. There's all kinds of idioms that we have to say um, the truth is the truth no matter who says it. Some of us, if someone we didn't like politically said that drinking water is important, would die of dehydration within two days just to be stubborn. And having the graciousness to admit that even someone who disagrees with you can say the truth is a wise and good thing. So here he says, um, they've said we're his offspring. So there's this sense of connection back to who our source is. Uh, and since this is true, verse 29, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. In other words, we don't make God, God made us. Getting back to purpose, verse 30, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone, everyone to repent. Did I give a definition of repent? We'll often say it means to turn around. That's actually a two-step process. It doesn't literally mean turn around. It literally, in Greek, metanoia means the changing of the mind. Or repent in English is actually taken from French, but we know Spanish better. So how do you say to think in Spanish? Pensar. Rethink. It literally means to rethink. And so um, if... I'm really thirsty, and I think the water's here, but I realize I left it there. When I rethink, what do I do? I turn around because I really want water, and I really believe it's over there. I will then turn around. So the turnaround thing is fine, but the word actually means first and foremost rethink. And as we're talking to someone and sharing the gospel, we're saying rethink the way you process reality. You've got some decent ideas to start with, but I'm asking you to rethink it and look at it a different way. And when you rethink and see it a different way, your actions will change accordingly. So repentance is not a work of the will in terms of things I do. Repentance is seeing things the way they actually are and changing your mind and your allegiance to that reality. So he's wanting them to repent. And as a result, their sins... We talk about this in column two. How do we get from column one to column two? Uh, Paul talks about it in Romans one. We turn from whom to whom? We turn from the creator to the creation. Column one, we're in relationship and we trust God as Lord. Column two is when we listen to rebellious creation and believe that separation from God will give me more life than loyalty to God. And as you think about the friends you mentioned, that's probably part of their assessment, and they'll be reluctant to have an evangelistic discussion because they say, I don't want your religion because your religion will give me less life, not more life. And if I believe like you, I'm going to miss out. And you're saying, no, you need to rethink. And then, in fact, knowing God gives you more life, not less life. And that's the pivot of the argument. And so he says he wants you to rethink, and these sins, these rebellions of trying to be away from God, separated from God. Instead, you turn to God. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice. And that's about as explicit as it gets in terms of saying that there's going to be a day of accountability. And how has he done it? Verse 31. He says two things. Anybody want to draw that out? 
The resurrection is going to be the key. He's appointed this particular person, and that's where we hear about the anointment, the anointing, and that's the idea of how Jesus lived, but then how he died, and specifically, death is the fundamental problem that is shared by people everywhere regardless of the religion. If you have to make an argument about cosmological realities in order to share the gospel, you're going to find it's really difficult with some people that you're talking with. If they don't believe in really complicated views of what happens after life after death, and that's where you base your argument, is that going to be hard to do? It is. Is it hard to talk to people? Do most people believe in mortality and the problem of death? It's the point of contact that we share. It lowers the burden of your discussion. Now, he's not disavowing the idea of heaven and hell because he talks about he's going to judge the cosmos with justice, and this man is going to be the one to do it. But he says, the whole point of my argument is this. Lots of people say stuff, but this guy not only says stuff, he does stuff. And the number one thing he does is he says, I know what I'm talking about in life because I've conquered death. Your win when you proclaim the gospel is simply two things. Jesus is the highest authority of all, and he solves the problem of death. That's your simple message. Now, I'll show in the Roman road here in a second that that's exactly what Paul says his message was. Any observations or questions? Um, we need to be clear and we need to be real. The clear thing is that Jesus stands above any other authority in regard to the meaning, purpose, and direction of life. Jesus is the ultimate explanation for life. And when we say Lord, that's what we mean. He's the one who has authority. Secondly, that it's not just that he's conceptually got the greatest idea. Because if that was the case, we'd have to throw Gandalf into the mix. Right? There's Jesus and Buddha and Gandalf and others. The thing is, we're not just talking about who's conceptually a good idea. He says it's not only clear that he's the highest authority, but it's also that I believe that his authority is actual and real because he conquered death. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we're told this. His life, death, and resurrection separates him from anybody else. In science, we call it falsifiability. Um, does anybody in here speak Japanese? Your wife's not here, so we're safe. Sushi, kuriwa nandeska. Is that Japanese? Sounds like it. It is. I had an ESL class, and they taught me how to say that so we'd learn how to teach people a language they don't know. So I've been in an elevator one time in China, and these Japanese tourists came in. I mean, it was like a uh, stereotype. Guy had a camera around his neck and everything, and uh, I pointed to his camera, and I said, Oh, kuriwa nandeska? Oh, and he started speaking Japanese to me because I actually sounded like I had the right accent and everything. And then I had to try to convince him that it was just a trick, that I don't actually speak any Japanese except that one <laughs> sentence. And it didn't go well because he suddenly thought, 
But if you don't know Japanese, you don't know if I'm just making that up or if it's true or it's not. If I tell you that actually I'm the creator of all things and you're all emanations of my mind and I control you all, you can't prove that it's not true. You can just shrug and say, I'm not interested. I'm not convinced. I don't really care to try and solve it. But you cannot logically disprove it. The idea here is um, that Jesus stands out from talkers that talk about God and then they die. Uh, I live in a Buddhist context. Anybody know how Buddha died? They were around him, but it was difficult to be around him at that time because he stunk, because he had bad pork, and he got sick from the bad pork, vomiting, diarrhea, and he died of bad pork. It's not a very glorious thing for the one who solves all the mysteries and yet dies from eating bad food. And if you've ever had, you know, um, food poisoning and you wished you could die, maybe it's a sign. It's like, I wished I could die, but he really succeeded. And maybe that's an indication. But the deal is, he says he understands life and death and he dies and you wait. And you just have to wonder. Or Muhammad. Or Maharish Mahesh Yogi. I guess he's still alive, so we'll wait and see how he does. Or other people like that. Jesus says, you tear down this temple, my body, and in three days I'll rise again. And he repeatedly makes a claim that's falsifiable. Meaning, if I stay dead, then disregard me. His whole focal point is, believe what I say about life because I can show you that I can conquer death. And that's our primary good news. Our gospel is that the creator of life has arrived to show us how life works and that he proves it because he overcomes death. So his conclusion, he proved um, God has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he's appointed, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead, and he stopped talking. What was the result? He got two groups of response. What were the two groups? Yeah. Yeah, some people tweeted, I just had the most awkward lunch conversation ever. And some are like, wow, thanks for taking the time to notice me and to share with me. That's really interesting. I'd like to hear more about this. And your goal is to have enough courage that if the people you reach out to just laugh and say you're a you know, psycho, weirdo, religious person, that you're man enough to bear that and say, hey, at least I'm consistent. If I actually believe it's true, I care about you, and I'm willing to tell you what I believe. I'm not trying to control you. I'm not trying to beat you in a debate. I'm just trying to offer. And if you're interested, I'll tell you more. And if not, it's on you, man. Does that sound like a mandate we can work with? All right. That's what we're supposed to do. Let me real quickly prove and give you assurance. And this isn't on your sheet, so you can write this one in. Romans chapter 10. And in verse 8 is where we get a real sense of confidence here. This is Paul explaining the gospel. Romans 10. 
and he talks about the scriptures. And in verse 8, verse 7, he, he actually talks about the problem of heaven and who will go down to Sheol, who will go down to the place of dead, of the dead. And in verse 8 he says, in fact, it says, the message is very close at hand, it's on your lips and it's in your heart. Or, he says, this is the message of faith that we proclaim. This is what we, the apostles, when we preach, this is what we preach. And here's that message. Verse 9. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Everything else that follows is explaining why those two things are sufficient. I believe that Jesus is Lord quite simply means Jesus is more right than anybody else. It means more than that, but not less than that. It means that Jesus isn't one of my highest authorities, that there is no tie, that between everyone I've ever heard, Jesus is higher. We just talked. You're a smart guy. I respect um, your education. You kind of blew me away with those things. But honestly, I still think Jesus is uh, smarter. And I think you're interesting, but I think Jesus is right. I'm sticking with Jesus. I hope that doesn't offend you. That's your fallback position. In other words, if you're nervous and you don't want to sound too arrogant, do you feel embarrassed by saying, I think Jesus is smarter than your college professor? I think Jesus is smarter than that thing you read on the Internet. I think Jesus is smarter than you. And then when he says he reveals God and the secret of life, I'm sticking with Jesus. That's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, the Jew first and then the Gentile. And that's our position. So I don't have to defend and explain at great length. I just say, hey, man, I'm sticking with Jesus. He is Lord, and I believe that he's Lord in the way that matters the most. From my very heart, I actually believe that God raised him from the dead. The father raised his son and said, I accept your sacrifice and I validate your authority over all things. That's the message. He goes on to explain, but here's the mistake we make in evangelism. How many of y'all taught somebody else how to drive a car? Taught your kid how to drive a car? Taught a friend how to drive a car? Still teaching? Oh, that's probably not a good joke. Teaching... <laughs> No, don't, don't go there. It's on. It's recorded. No, yeah. I'm gonna... How many of y'all have explained the mathematics of a combustion engine such that it propels the car forward but doesn't explode and burn you in a horrible death? Okay, there's one. Thank you. I see that hand. I can, understand, I can explain it, like, really, really vaguely, but if, like, a legit physicist or engineer is there, I'm going to get really nervous and make jokes to hide the fact that I don't know as much as I think I do. We don't get to Taco Bell because we can do the math on propulsion. We get to Taco Bell because we believe that if you turn the ignition, the car will get you there. And you believe that the simple reality that the car burning fuel makes it go is where your faith is. 
and you believe that given time you could explain how it works, but you're not saved by explaining how it works. I'm not saved from being really hungry and not able to get to my tacos. I'm saved from my hunger because I trust this is the way to get from here to there. And we think that sharing the gospel is about an engineering debate of explaining how propitiation, expiation, substitution works. And we want people to have faith in our explanation of the mechanics of salvation, and we're making a terrible mistake. The biblical example is people have faith in the person of salvation, and then after they get saved, as much as we can to teach them, let me explain how he did this. And the reason many of us don't share our faith is because we're not engineers in the metaphor here, we can't thoroughly do the rhetoric or the theology, or if we do, we lose people. And I'm trying to tell us it's okay. Yeah. And I can go from, it's about a man so obsessed with justice, he becomes unjust, and a man though unjust finds mercy and becomes just, and begin to talk about the context of the French Revolution and what Victor Hugo was about and who Jean Valjean is, and all these other details, and I can go deep. But if I don't connect on the essential point, then the depth is wasted. And I'll actually have the depth scare people away from the essential point. So we put it in the right order. All right, before, yeah, go ahead. When I, when I went to Bible school and seminary, one of the best books was John Stott's The Cross of Christ. And it, it takes different atonement theories and the rest. That is not a very good evangelistic tool. But it's a great tool for people who come to faith. Let's test it against Scripture, though. Here's the message that Paul is saying. How did Jesus lead someone to himself, lead someone to the Lord, as he died? Yeah, you got two guys there. One's like provoking him, wanting to have a debate. You know, you psycho-religious fundamentalist, you can't even save yourself. And he's just trash-talking him. What's the other guy say? Yeah, he's like, you're a nut job, man. We deserve to be up here because we're wild and crazy, and we provoked, and now we're getting it. This guy, there's something different about him. He's legitimate. Then he talks to Jesus, and what's the story there? What does he ask Jesus? He basically does Romans 10.9. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. How is he confessing that Jesus is Lord and that God will raise him from the dead by saying that? He acknowledges him as king. Yeah, he actually believes that Jesus has the power to offer him hope after death, which means he's got confidence in his power to overcome death. That's it. And what does Jesus say in response? Well, let's talk about the Trinity for a second. <laughs> Have I explained to you the inspiration of Scripture and the appropriate translation to use? Have I explained to you the difference uh, of uh, grace and works? He found someone and said, You're Lord. I need you. I actually trust you with my life to bring me to the other side of death. And he said, you'll be with me in paradise. 
which again, this is one of the reasons we also are careful. What's the difference between paradise, Abraham's bosom, uh, heaven, heaven and earth, the new Jerusalem? Can we differentiate those? Or what's the difference between Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, hell, lake of fire, Tartarus, the dry places? It's really not as simple as we think. But who am I going to trust as the highest authority and not just trust theoretically, but with the ultimate problem of life and death? And from the position of faith, I'm going to explore the triune. I'm going to explore the implications of all these other deep doctrines that matter profoundly. But they don't have to be front-loaded. All right. So right now at your table, try to talk through or make notes of, here's the things that I remember that might be useful. Here's the things I want to look up later because I'm not really sure I understand or agree with what he's saying there. So take a few minutes and seriously um, try to process through the way Paul talked in Acts 17, the, the way Paul explained himself in Romans 10, verse 9, and the example of Jesus dealing with the thief on the cross with this incredibly short statement of faith that he believes he's king who can offer life after death, and Jesus validates him. So just those three ideas and see what you come up with of what works, what doesn't work, and then we'll do a little bit of practice. Ready, set, go. Is it working? We're just telling the story. Um, my wife has written a book called The Blessing Book where she takes the occurrence of blessing and goes chronologically from Genesis to Revelation so that every day you get like two or three paragraphs explaining this verse. You learn the story. But it's also the same premise here that the more you're able to not let a TV preacher tell you what blessed means but let God's word tells you what blessed means, which is much more nuanced, and you process your own life through the gospel. This is for you first. If you preach the gospel to yourself constantly, there's good, but now I have conflict, and I'm trying to resolve it. And in Christ, I know that good overcomes evil, so I'm going to be ethical and gracious, even though I'd like to totally devastate my opponent here. And I'm going to suffer well, knowing that I will be vindicated. The gospel helps you to live your life. And I was sharing, my wife writes books, and then she walks dogs and um, works at Minchie's Frozen Yogurt. And she shares more gospel at Minchie's than 90% of the staff at Houston's First Baptist. Uh, and it's not a rebuke on us. We're answering emails, and we're equipping saints for ministry and all that. But we live in such a Christian world, the vast majority of our time, and she doesn't target anybody. And this is the thing that makes us anxious about evangelism is it feels weird to target somebody. But when you preach the gospel to yourself and to one another so that you're always processing everything through, goodness is from God and badness is because we're separated from God and that Christ tells us that good overcomes evil and I'm in him, but I'm still growing to be like him and one day it's all going to be okay. The more you tell that to yourself in the moment, gospel witness just spills out. And there's stories that I was sharing over here. I won't share um, on Mike. Uh, just of um, some interesting ways that uh, my wife has made a huge difference in people's lives just because she thinks gospel and in him she lives and moves and have her being. And it's amazing. Every day the stories to come. The end here is 
the Great Commission is actually go apprentice people, all kinds everywhere, and specifically we immerse them in the triune God. It includes the act of baptism, but baptizo in Greek really means to immerse. Your goal is that the people you're wanting to witness to would be immersed in the reality of God, both literally in baptism, but in him we move and have our being. Teach them to live the way Jesus did, and remember, he's there with you. All authority in heaven and earth has been given me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teach them to obey all things whatsoever commanded you, and lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. Apprentice people how to live, to be immersed in God, and to do the things that Jesus said, to be confident and unashamed, don't be afraid, I'm there to help you. And so the problem in life is separation from God. We get that from columns one and two. The provision in life is redemption that's provided by God in Christ, and that's his life, death, and then life. And then finally, the promise is transformation and then completion, which means you don't lie to people. When you come to faith in Christ, your life will get better and worse, is what you tell them. Because when you come to Christ as Lord in a world that's still separated, you will have to take up your cross and love your enemies. And it's not easy and it's not pleasant. But as a group, we'll learn how to do it, and he's with us to help us do it. And one day, vindication will come, and righteousness will reign. But I'm not calling you to an easy life. I'm calling you to a good life. Would you like to put your faith and trust in Jesus as the Lord of life who overcomes death with new life? That's our witness. Thanks. The most important thing for any of us here, honestly, is every day, if we are not thinking through, meditating on, and seeking to live aligned with God, his grace, his purposes, if we get our eyes set on ourselves, and this is my life, and I'm just going to mash through the day like I mashed through Monday to Tuesday to Wednesday, we're going to wake up in 25 years and say, where in the heck have I been? What's going on? And we're going to miss I love the quote, I do not fear failure, I fear succeeding at the wrong thing. And I'm just telling you, we have far too many men who have succeeded at the wrong thing. They're successful at the wrong thing. And and may it not be said at Houston's first among warrior's heart here that, that we have succeeded at the wrong thing. And Russell has brought the right thing. He's brought the gospel. So the great men of faith, we were asking y'all, these are great men of faith, they're, they're, it's not that they're greater than us, it's they've aligned themselves with the one true God, and they have walked faithfully with that one true God in wherever the circumstance of life led them. They haven't shied away from it, and I, I love that. There's a quote from Anselm, it's, faith-seeking understanding came to my mind when you were talking, and that is our posture, and that is our position, that, that I would die I would never make it out of my childhood if I had to fully comprehend and understand everything like food and agriculture and lactation, you name whatever else. Our orientation in life is we trust first and we experience and later we come to understand. So taste and see that the Lord is good. And may we invite people to that because he is good and we know that. I want to pray over us. Next week, Willie Bolden will be here. I do want y'all to invite, if each of us invite one guy, I mean, this is one of the best, I mean, it's the relationships that form as you sit around a table over 12 weeks or 20 weeks, and you pray for each other. These things shape and mold our lives. It's ordained by God that friendship is one of his chosen tools of transformation. 
not just scripture, not just prayer. I'm not diminishing those, but friendship, biblical friendship. And if we don't get that, we're also missing out. That's one reason we put you around tables and we want you to talk and pray for each other. We, we, we pray for God to change that, that, that our men would not be isolated and alone here. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your love and your goodness and your mercy. We thank you, Lord, that you are greater. You are the true one. And uh, Lord, there's a lot of things that vie for our affections and our attention, but there is only one who is deserving, and that is you. And so, Lord God, would we would we truly be mindful of you? And I know we're getting ready to walk out of here and hop on a freeway and go to an office and go into a meeting or get on a conference call. But, but God, people are going to be all around us. May we see them as you see them through the lens of grace and love and not, God, as people that are in our way. But, God, they're on the way somewhere. And may we be part of your call to them being on the way to you eternally. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the garden room of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. Have a great day.